All right, guys, we made it to Friday. Uh, we didn't have a special Friday GPP show last week due to Thanksgiving, so excited to be back in the saddle. I'm bringing on a guest that I'm very excited to talk to, Stuart Gibson from Advanced Sports Analytics. I did a show with him last year where we really honed in on correlations and how we can utilize them in our DFS and GPP lineup builds. So excited to run that back with him today. We have some data to dig into, all of that good stuff to help you guys get an edge as we head down the stretch of this DFS NFL season. Let's do it. I suffer from a debilitating condition known as atropic shockitis. Peter's one of the greatest depositors I've ever seen. Trust the process. Let's go. Let's go. I got auto match with Levitan. Bullshit. If I just go the other way in that 66, I win all the money. All the money. If I had 150 lineups, I'd win too. Process over results. Illuminati make a bitch go crazy. I don't know which one of these my baby. Bust out AP, close spot bullets in your head like KD. Bust it, bust it, bitch go bust it. And I had 10 pints with me in Russia. Hey everyone. Stuart Gibson from Advanced Sports Analytics. How you doing, buddy? Hey, yeah, doing good. Um been a long season i guess we're kind of beyond halfway but uh you know with these extra game uh you know we still got a ways to go and of course playoffs i think is always pretty fun um so uh yeah just uh you know keeping on keeping on and um you know figure we got about two more months till the finish line that's right yeah i was looking at uh when we did our show last year and it was exactly this same week it was first week of december there must be something in my brain where by this point in the season we're trying to find every possible <laughs> micro edge because the <laughs> fields are so tough and uh how do we do that but by looking toward correlation and and for people who don't know Stuart does uh awesome work over at, at advanced sports analytics you guys might have heard him on the show he does with blender on the rg network the asa show uh, one of my weekly listens. And I also get uh, Stuart Substack. If you uh, aren't ponying up for the full suite of tools, you can get access to a weekly post where Stuart shares some of the sim results and some of the, the correlations and the best stacks he's seeing on the slate. I highly recommend that. Is there anything else I've, I'm forgetting that you've been working on uh, this season, Stuart? I know you're always uh, deep in the data weeds. Yeah, not really. I mean, you know, doing the, the ASA site. Um, and I mean, since this calendar year I, I think we added like nhl to our stack which has just been like a little a little more work and uh trying to yeah for nfl this year like we have uh built out a simulation system which we did not did not have last year um so it's been you know a good bit of work just staying on top of that um yeah substack uh yeah that feels like about it um as it pertains to dfs stuff so um yeah, keep, keep, keeps me busy, um, for sure. That is, and I, I thought it was cool that you added the, you know, sim stuff. And obviously uh, around these parts, we've been utilizing the sims that run the sims a lot this year. And how do you describe it to people? Because one of the things that, I find so helpful with Sims and I've talked with Brian Hooper brick 75 about this as well as like this concept of how hard it is for us to juggle all these variables, these correlations in our head and that Sims, you know, bake this information into it. So how do you describe the Sims or how do you think about Sims like vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, this correlation data that we're going to look at on a, on a more micro level and how those Sims are incorporating those concepts? Yeah. So like, I guess the way I see it, you know, and I'm thinking about the shows I do with Blender both this year and last year, you know, we're, we're talking about a few, uh, I guess, pillars of kind of lineup consideration for tournaments, right? Uh, ownership, the, the rate at which players are going to be rostering, uh, uh, DFS players, players of the game are going to be rostering actual, you know, NFL players. Um, the range of outcomes of those players, you know, what is the relative ceiling uh, of a player compared to kind of their mean projection? Not all players have the exact same shape in their distribution, even though, you know, uh, obviously like looking at mean or standard projections is useful in terms of kind of creating some hierarchy of players. Um, for example, like uh, one I think we wrote about fairly recently, like you look at Amari Cooper, CeeDee Lamb on Dallas, right? Same same team, same quarterback. They're always kind of in the same uh, game environment, uh, but just the the variables that kind of define the type of player CeeDee Lamb is, you know, uh, fairly low uh, relatively low, I guess, a dot and kind of fewer yards after catch, 
um, than Cooper. You know, it, he, at times this year, he's been kind of a better meme projection. Uh, but Cooper has, you know, f- from our projections, historically has had, you know, a slightly higher ceiling, significantly lower floor. Uh, you know, we obviously want to bake that into our uh, tournament process. Uh, and then the correlation of the players that we roster and how they relate to one another. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, week in, week out, we try to like look at these metrics. Everyone has kind of their set of uh, heuristics or indicators that they like referring to. And then there's kind of this process of, you know, putting that together in in your head or, you know, if you're using some sort of spreadsheet or, uh, you know, whatever, whatever people's process are. Um, so we, so we think, you know, we, we think there's a good approach to using uh, simulations. So the notion that rather than looking at, you know, any sort of lineup or, or, or slate in like the context of like, what is the most likely outcome, you know, running over batches of say a uh, thousand or so uh, runs of the slate, you know, see how sampling from players range of outcomes from their distribution, uh, you know, up, up weighting or down weighting players uh, distributions conditional on the sample of a player that they're correlated with. Uh, you know, if you have, say Amari Cooper and Dak Prescott, and you pull just randomly like a 75th percentile outcome from Cooper, uh, naturally the, the kind of range of outcomes or distribution that you're sampling from, from Dak Prescott should shift up a little bit, right? Like if Cooper has a 75th percentile game, doesn't mean that Dak is also going to have exactly 75th percentile, but he's certainly more likely to have, um, or, you know, he's, he's more likely to kind of achieve like an upper, upper, upper half upper quartile type outcome conditional on the outcome of Cooper having a good game. Conversely, you know, if Cooper has a terrible game uh, from, from this batch that we're simulating or kind of simulating, I, I, the way I see it is kind of just um, a pull from like a distribution or pull from a uh, bucket of, you know, possible outcomes as it pertains to how the game is played out on the field, uh, but also how lineups are constructed, right? Like, um, you know, I think we, we go through the process of iterating and simulating how, uh, you know, say if it's like, like we do uh, like a 12,000 person tournament is kind of the, the base that we're working off of figuring that that gives people a sense of how, um, you know, large field tournaments, tournaments might operate compared to that versus, you know, super small field tournaments uh, might operate compared to this kind of 12 we see as kind of a healthy median. Um, you know, so we'll like simulate like, all right, if, if, you know, people out there, if someone, if a computer aimed to build, uh, 50,000 lineups in the vein of how people tend to build lineups. So uh, understanding at what rate people are double stacking, single stacking, bringing back, running naked, uh, allowing defenses to be paired against the quarterback or even just players at all that they're rostering, you know, get this large kind of pool of possible lineups that we might expect to see uh, in a tournament and then pull, you know, 11 or 12,000 from that batch of 50 or from batch of a hundred and then, run through a slate, score, you know, see, see what players get, uh, making some tweaks and adjustments based on correlation, uh, allowing, you know, understanding that players have kind of a range of outcomes, not just a single outcome or single most likely outcome. And, you know, then comparing that to these batch of lineups that we created in this hypothetical tournament, scoring the lineup, seeing how much money essentially these different lineups would have made. And then, uh, you know, one approach could be to just be like, all right, well, across, you know, a thousand iterations of these slate and tournament uh, runs, what is the top performing lineup? Not from like which one had the, you know, highest average score or whatever, but which one had the highest ROI, you know, which one uh, had uh, the highest frequency in the top 1% of lineups using that as kind of a guide for uh, how we might expect to uh, build lineups. Yeah. I haven't up. This is Pete this showing is- one from last week. Yeah. I, and I, yeah, this is a, a chart that you include in the weekly Substack post. And I was wondering if you could, um, you know, explain to me what the, the average ROI, like how that is working. All of these other columns uh, I understand, but was always a little confused how the average ROI is being calculated. And like you said, this is for around a, a 10 K simulated contest. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, we look at all these lineups uh, that have been run through these multiple iterations uh, identify the lineups as some of them obviously are like unstacked because sometimes people play kind of unstacked lineups, but for the most part, uh, lineups have some semblance of a stack. Um, 
either with or without a bring back. Um, and then we say like, all right, of the lineups that um, involve some sort of Houston stack, either a single or a double with or without a New York Jets bring back, uh, the average ROI of lineups that are defined as a Houston stack uh, had a plus 18% ROI. Uh, of those lineups, uh, they appeared in the top 1% at a 1.5% clip. So um, I think I mentioned kind of on the show with Blender, like in theory, if everything is perfectly balanced and efficient, uh, every team should have a probability, every stack or a stack of every team should have a probability of appearing in the top 1%, roughly 1% of the time. Uh, so any team that is appearing in the top 1% of these runs at a rate higher than 1%, you know, I think shows up as like uh, just uh, kind of a good play. Uh, any team that's showing up at a rate lower than 1%, uh, bad. And I, lately, I, you know, I've been kind of trying to think about what is the correct metric or what is the like the most useful metric to key off of and have kind of been shifting more. So like we've been sorting it lately by top 1%. Um, my thinking is like, especially with these low ownership uh, type stacks, like all it takes is just kind of one screwy uh, simulation where uh, like, so just looking at this one, you know, Tennessee was not figuring to be stacked in a big way is projected as fairly low value. Um, but if for some reason, you know, just still are people going to play Tennessee stacks. And, you know, if we had one sneak in there and just get kind of a good simulation run, you know, based on randomness, based on, you know, it's like even the worst teams, you know, have, have, uh, especially when you're doing this kind of through a, through a data oriented program, um, there's a possibility where a Tennessee stack could uh, produce kind of first place massive. And, you know, the way these payout structures are uh, set up, like all it takes is kind of one, especially at low ownership, like all it takes is just one good Tennessee lineup to show up as the top lineup uh, in a tournament. And then like that could appear as just a, uh, you know, massive kind of high ROI when in reality, if you were kind of to juice up the, uh, the batch size or the number of runs you did, you would expect that to kind of normalize. Um, so yeah, I lately have been kind of focusing on top 1%, just seems like a smoother, uh, less noisy metric to key off of. Yeah, how would you compare it? Because I know when, uh, you know, on my Sunday morning shows, we'll run the run the Sims and we'll get the updated batch after, you know, final inactives are in and, and see the kind of specific players that are showing up most frequently in the in the simulated lineups. Uh, obviously, it's the constant push and pull for content, right? Like people want content early in the week to start thinking about their lineup, stuff like that. How fragile uh, do you think some of this stuff is and uh, can be impacted by like we see Houston, New York Jets say, you know, Brandon Cooks, who's who's sick this week. You know, I know this isn't this game, but like he's ruled out, you know, does that top one percent thing change in a meaningful way? And and have you considered maybe sending this out after inactives? I'm just curious kind of where you see, you know, the value in it, you know, versus what's actionable and and kind of how you would use this in a meaningfully way in a meaningful way on Sundays. Yeah, I, I do find it to be fairly fragile. I mean, it, it kind of just depends on the, uh, I guess, scale of, of the news that maybe changes. Um, like if it's, you know, something kind of minor, minor player getting ruled out or whatever, not not going to move the needle in a huge way. But I mean, we do have these slates where like, you know, Friday, Friday afternoon or Sunday morning or whatever, like there are just, you know, a half dozen or so kind of meaningful players that get ruled out. And like, yeah, I mean, the trickle down effect can be pretty big because that type of stuff, you know, most notably affects uh, projection value. And then based on that, that's going to affect uh, how we project ownership. Uh, also going to affect the projection of players that essentially are in and, you know, stand to benefit, I guess uh, that's kind of tied to projection, but, you know, it's going to stand to benefit from that player being ruled out. Um, that affects range of outcomes. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, we, we have kind of tried to think about that. Um, it almost like it, the thing is like Sunday morning, it becomes tough to like run the Sims, you know, just the, the process of like putting stuff online is not insignificant, you know, uploading stuff, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, creating, creating some like web page uh, where, where kind of the new, the new thing lives. Um, and then much less, you know, actually taking the time to like, look at it, write an article all while trying to manage, you know, the, the, the many things that are happening on Sunday morning. Um 
I don't know. So yeah, maybe I guess moving forward, like we could think about uh, essentially updating the graphic uh, in the Substack or on the on the blog on the site. Uh, it becomes pretty difficult though to like run, you know, upload uh, to the internet, interpret, write uh, all in essentially the ninety minute window, and, and then of course you know manage like you know some of the lineups I have uh, all yeah. in a ninety minute window uh, before lock uh, can be can be pretty tough. Um, yeah, but, you know, I, we, we have we have been trying to move it to Saturday uh, just to get like Friday inactives. Uh, yeah, I, the way I've been using it is I really like it as a check on are there any kind of stacks or game environments I'm I'm overlooking. And and then I kind of go back through and look at my stuff a little closer and see what I might be missing. But yeah, I think it would be awesome if you were able, even if you didn't add any additional commentary, like if you were just to send an updated graphic you know, at noon, 1230, even, even 30 minutes before I, I just as a subscriber would, uh, would personally enjoy that if you're able to fit it in. Um, Corey asking here, uh, what contests do you play? Is there a reason he chooses the 12 K entry contest? And I think he's saying, you know, relative to the Sims, are you running the Sims based on the contest sizes you're playing? Or is that just <laughs> yeah. kind of a good middle thing? And, and Corey's asking, uh, that he, he appreciates the smaller stuff and that's what we've been focusing around here i'd say in general about as big as we're getting as like 6k 7k fields you know maybe the bigger spies the bigger red zone um but even lately we were talking in the discord too like we're we're really trying to get even sub 1000 in a lot of our contest selections so yeah curious what you're playing and also curious how you might think those kind of sims and those projected rois might change for you know a contest that's one tenth the size of what you're simming yeah, so it kind of just started because that's the contest style I like. I kind of like the the twenty entry max, like ten thousand or so, and um, you know, just playing the the just throwing like eighty lineups across like the you know four of like the low stakes um, stuff. Man, I got off to a very bad start this year and have kind of spent a little more try- time trying to do like the single entry hand build type uh, approach. And yeah, that you're has to become been a going. hand builder. Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, th- I think I'm going to be converting back because that hasn't been, been going so well. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, I do like kind of the optimizer approach just cause like, well, yeah, for, for reasons, I guess maybe not to go into, but um, so yeah, that, that that's kind of where it started from. But like, I also think it makes sense, right? Like uh, if we were to focus on the small tournaments, the, the really small, you know, sub 1000 or whatever, it just feels like it would be almost, you know, rendered useless for the, you know, big uh, lotteries. And if we focused on the big lotteries, A, it would take significantly longer to run, uh, you know, uh, potentially a prohibitively long time to run. Um, and then also it just would be rendered nearly irrelevant for kind of the small field stuff. So settling somewhere in between, I think makes sense. And yeah, as far as how to like, interpret the numbers we have and how to um apply them to tournaments of different sizes um yeah i mean i think with like the small stuff you there's less need to go like super far off the board so like houston last week was projected to be pretty uh highly owned and and a pretty good projection so like wouldn't be super off the board but there have been previous weeks weeks where like we've had reasonably high relative ROIs for, for Houston when they have been a super off the board play for, for small field stuff, probably just not a whole lot of need to go that, that deep. Uh, New England has been a team that we kind of see relatively high ROIs for that, you know, for the big field stuff, you know, I think actually makes a lot of sense. And that's been kind of a fun stack uh, to play for like, as one of your really deep shots, but um, for the small field stuff, Sometimes, you know, it just makes more sense to kind of focus on like the top um, half or so of teams from a ownership or maybe, you know, from, uh, you know, ceiling or mean value standpoint, because, you know, ownership and uh, value tend to correlate pretty strongly. So, you know, if you just lop off the bottom half of teams uh, uh, for, from a value standpoint, say like, look, I'm just not going to mess around with teams that don't project at least reasonably well even though I know, you know, they're going to be essentially no ownership and maybe there's some edge to gain there uh, for the faults, for the small field stuff. I really just want to be focusing on like the top uh, half or the top quartile of teams from a value standpoint and kind of see, see which ones might be a little under there. Um, so that might be how, how I would think about it. Um, yeah. 
For sure. And I mean, that that's the beauty of, you know, these these main slates, you know, when we have 10 plus games is it, it's not hard to be a smart contrarian player. Like you can get in, you know, plays where you're not sacrificing that many projected points and you're getting them at a fifth of the ownership of whatever the, you know, the chalk is condensing on. So, yeah, I do think that uh, that makes sense for the small field stuff. Uh, I wanted to pull up um, some data you sent over before the show and I got some questions in the discord of kind of looking at some of these specific correlations. And I know it's been, you know, kind of a hot topic of conversation specifically this year around bringbacks in general. I think most people now uh, are completely comfortable with the idea of QB to wide receiver correlation and stuff, but let's pull up this, uh, this data that you ran uh, just this morning here and, and maybe kind of talk through, first of all, what people are seeing here, what some of these definitions are, and then maybe we can dig into some of the more interesting uh, findings here. Yeah. So let's see, before the show, I think you sent over some questions that people had um, about like trends in correlation uh, over the years and trying to understand maybe how to contextualize and, and adjust and update, um, I guess, based on trends in correlation. So I just went back and looked at the past, I guess, two and a half years. So present year back to 2019. Um and just checked essentially the correlations of, of these different combinations of players. So there's a lot of stuff like, uh, I guess, prim, primary, uh, secondary, tertiary. Um, so like primary rush, primary rest, uh, receiving RB, just the running back that received the most uh, targets or the most rush attempts in a game. And um, yeah, I think you talked about it like last year. The, the concept of correlation is really like, you're just you just have two columns if you, you know, from like a data standpoint you just have two columns um, of I guess data points that relate to one another across like the same game and same team and you're just seeing you know, how how those relate to one another does uh, the 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 value of each kind of cell in column one does that have like tangible I guess impact on our ability to predict the value of column two at each individual kind of cell or row. Uh, each row being like a game team combination. Um, so yeah, like rush RB, rest RB, you know, most targets, most rush attempts in a game worth noting uh, in a game per team worth noting that like, this is a retrospect uh, retrospective kind of way of looking at it. Like we never know who is going to be the primary receiving running back going into the game. We usually have a pretty good idea with running back, but like with receivers, sometimes it's unclear who is likely to be the primary wide receiver or the secondary wide receiver uh, when the game actually plays out. Um, so that's kind of worth noting. Probably juices up the correlation a little, a little bit. Um, and you know, wish we could do. I wish I had like historical depth charts and how they kind of changed over time, but uh, unfortunately, do not. So um, yeah, primary wide receiver, tight end. So essentially, receiver that's not a running back. Obviously, there are some teams where the running back and some games where. Running back is kind of the top receiver on their team. Um, and then there was a question about tight end correlation, which, uh, you know, happy yeah. to kind of discuss in greater detail. So we do have this row for uh, QB and primary tight end. So the tight end that received the most targets, as well as how the primary tight end correlates with the primary, secondary, and tertiary receivers. Um, and then also, like, I, I've been kind of interested this year in trying to play more of running backs with quarterbacks, specifically running backs that project to be uh, fairly involved in the past game. So, uh, you know, I've been playing like a lot of Herbert Eckler uh, plus, you know, a receiver tight end type stack Patterson um, Fournette, maybe. Yeah. For, yeah. The Brady Fournette ones have been pretty fun because a lot of people get pretty tied up on like the Godwin Evans decision, you know, Godwin Evans Gronk and like, you know, Fournette's kind of a, and it, you know, Tampa Bay has been in so many like high spread games where, there's seems like pretty likely paths to Fournette being productive as a runner and pass catcher. Um, Najee Harris, but like, he hasn't really, you don't want to like, I haven't really been playing any bin stacks. Um, did do like Thanksgiving, like a golf swift, you know, that would be another one where like, you know, swift kind of almost operates as a, as a running back, uh, pass catcher wide receiver type. Um, so yeah, I mean, and then, and then, you know, doing it by year just so we can kind of see the movement. Um, Really nothing surprising with like receive, you know, receiver tight ends. I'll just call them receivers, referring to wide receivers and tight ends, you know, strong correlation with the quarterback. Um, pretty good correlation with one another. Um, I do find it interesting that like primary and secondary 
pass catchers correlate well with one another. Um, yeah, and there was a a real quick question here from Tom: Is primary and secondary determined by routes run? You were saying it's just determined by the points scored, right? Uh, by by targets. Um, by targets. Okay. So yeah, I don't we we don't get access to the routes run data. Um, we have snap share, so that could be like a decent way to do it. But I do get worried that like, well, tight ends versus receivers, like you know, a tight end who's on the field. 90% of the time, is that equivalent to a wide receiver that's on the field uh, uh, 90% of the time? You know, there's some like positional differences, right? I didn't really feel comfortable using Snapshare. Yeah, I mean, if you if you had routes run data, I think that would be a really, probably a good way to do it um, as well. You know, I think a, a good, you know, you're just, you're just looking for something that's a good indicator of the overall hierarchy, I guess, of, um, you know, pass catchers within kind of their, their roster and, and their scheme. Um, yeah, so, so like I found it interesting that, you know, you have this pretty good correlation between primary and secondary pass catchers, but there's next to no correlation. And especially this year, this has been the case between secondary and tertiary pass catchers. So, you know, the idea of like, okay, we're, we're okay. We'd probably be okay doing like a Godwin, you know, Godwin Evans or Godwin Gronk or, um, you know, Evans, you know, some, some, any combination of those three, but like, I'd be a little hesitant to do something, you know, maybe even if you're feeling like really outside of the box, something like Godwin, Tyler Johnson, but I'd be pretty hesitant to do something like Tyler Johnson, Gronk or Tyler Johnson, Cam Brate or like uh Brate Fournette, you know, these essentially trying to pair like two deep down the depth chart guys yeah. uh, has not been correlative, which I think makes sense, right? Like there's really just barring an injury, like it's unlikely that the third and fourth receiver are going to have big games. You know, maybe one of them can have a big game. Um, but yeah, so yeah. that's kind of my take there. And I, I've thought about that from a GPP perspective too. And I, I think I've heard you and Blender talk about it as well. Like if there's that popular, you know, shootout game of the week, um, was it Dallas KC a few weeks ago? And there's sometimes the temptation to be like, all right, I'll do the Dalton Schultz, Mikkel Hardman here. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, if that you're, you're trying to thread such a tight needle where in general, it's like, you're just kind of fading that game and hoping nothing gets there because or what are the scenarios where those guys put up massive points, but all of the primary guys flop. It just, I think that, you know, made intuitive sense to me. And it's nice to see it kind of borne out in the numbers there as well. Yeah. Um, I thought a really interesting one was the tight end position. I know you had a question coming on your discord prior to the show uh, about tight end, essentially that there's been more talk about, really trying to use tight end as a correlative piece. Um, I don't know. The, the data has suggested that there has been kind of a decline in the correlation between QB and primary tight end uh, over the last two years. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to think about, like, I haven't given it too much thought, but, you know, I do think of like 2019 as like a banner year for tight ends. You know, it just seemed like every week one of Waller or Kelsey or Kittle were breaking the slate and it was just like, you know, Kelsey Mahomes wins or uh, Kittle Garoppolo wins or, uh, you know, Waller, David Carr, big, uh, you know, big, you know, super important kind of stack to sit around. And like this year, yeah, those guys have had their flashes. I mean, Kittle's been out a good bit this year. Waller's been out a little bit. And certainly those guys have had flashes, but it certainly hasn't been quite like as uh, much of a banner season this year for tight ends. Um and, you know, I think about like, you know, some of the tight ends that have been uh, really tournament viable have been some of these cheap tight ends. And like, to me, the value, at least just in theory, it, it would seem to make sense. Like the value of correlating your tight end uh, increases at kind of the price point of that tight end. You know, like if an expensive Travis Kelsey or Kyle Pitts or, you know, Waller, who's, you know, expecting that, you know, potentially not going to play this week, like if those guys have a slate breaking performance, like it almost certainly implies that Derek Carr or Matt Ryan, or, uh, you know, if Gronkowski has a slate breaking uh, performance, it, it like, it almost implies that, right. Brady is going to have a, maybe not must have performance, but certainly a uh, would be good to have type performance. And like if Dan Arnold or, um, you know, even like Foster Moreau this week, like if Foster Moreau, um, you know, puts up uh, 80 in a score, like that doesn't necessarily mean that David Carr 
is a necessary piece in your tournament lineup. So um, yeah, I don't, I, I haven't really looked at like what the uh, numbers are as far as like, are people using tight end more as part of their stacks? Um, I do wonder though, if maybe it makes sense if, if that is the trend that uh, we're seeing, if, yeah, maybe it makes sense to try to actually do a little bit less of that when when we're using like some of these cheap kind of value tight ends, uh, you know, Dan Arnold's yeah. of the world, uh, the Moreau's. Um, to me, you know, like, it, it does make intuitive sense that QB primary tight end would be highly correlated, especially in a year like this, where, like you said, a lot of these tight ends aren't, you know, garnering super high target shares. And there there's fewer times where a guy's getting, you know, 12 targets and he's getting there on PPR scoring and his quarterback isn't following. It does feel like the tight ends that are getting there are due to touchdowns, which are obviously going to be, you know, then directly correlated uh, with the quarterback there. And I think that's why it makes sense with those cheap tight ends too, right? If like no one's separating at the top end, you know, with a huge target share, then it's going to be the cheap guys who bink the touchdown and are therefore correlated with their quarterback that are going to be getting there. Yeah. Um, but like, I don't know. I mean, I guess like that being said, the cheap tight end that catches a touchdown and, you know, Banks doesn't necessarily like, it's just not implied that uh, I think it has like less implication or less kind of correlation with that quarterback being a necessary tournament piece as we're like, yeah, like, yes, if, if Dan Arnold is getting there on PPR, that obviously doesn't correlate in a, in a meaningful way with uh, Trevor Lawrence. But like if, you know, Waller is getting there on PPR, well, A, you know, his price is typically at a point where like, it's difficult for him to just get there on yards and PPR. Um, but, you know, it's also difficult for him to get there on like just a touchdown and a couple catches. Um, so, you know, if you do have Waller in your lineup for, for him to be like a tournament winner, you know, you're kind of hoping for at least one touchdown, uh, a combination of like uh, two touchdowns or like one touchdown and maybe a hundred yards that, that type of stuff like should necessitate a, a car, um, you know, car being, I think, uh, highly tournament viable. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I kind of just looked at this stuff this morning and haven't, yeah. uh, given it a ton, a ton of thought, but I do, I, I thought it was interesting that the, the correlation between QB and the primary tight end has trended down. Yeah. Like I said, not, you know, we're only halfway through the season, so not like a huge sample size or anything, but, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and Jacob here bringing up a point of obviously different uh, quarterback tight end pairings have much higher and much lower correlation. And this is this is kind of the beauty of the Sims, right? Like we were just pulling that from a macro perspective just to identify trends in a macro. But the beauty of the Sims is they're going to factor in that obviously, you know, Mahomes, Kelsey, and I can pull up here a screen share uh, from the advanced sports analytics tools here to show exactly what uh, Jacob is describing here. Justin Herbert and Jared Cook, uh, a negative correlation over this, you know, two or three year span or however long they played together. And then we can look at the Mahomes Kelsey, which I'm going to guess has a very strong correlation. Yeah. 0.376. So um, that's more looking at general trend data. And then the Sims are helping us account for this specific correlation. Is, is that how you would view it? Um, so we, we are not using like player specific correlation uh, in the simulations. It's like, player specific gets can get pretty dicey right like Kelsey Mahomes have had a long track record of being in this kind of stable relationship to one another um you think of though even like uh you know I don't know I think of TJ Hawkinson as pretty stable uh but but even still you know if you look back to his last two years where Marvin Jones was on the team and kind of they uh, Kenny Galladay were on the, was on the team like the relationship between um you know, Hawkinson and, and of course he has, you know, a different quarterback the past, uh, I guess over the past three years, uh, you know, that, that relationship is going to be different. And, um, you know, I, I do think you can run into some challenges. Like I think I talked about it maybe last year on the show, like when Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams were on the same team and yeah. looking at how essentially those two guys related to maybe like Devonte Adams or, or Rogers, I forget kind of who, but it's just like, you know, and even looking at Jamal Williams this week, right? Like the relationship he has to TJ Hawkinson this week is going to be vastly different than the relationship he's had to TJ Hawkinson in right. the weeks prior. Cause it's just like a totally different role. Um, you know, the relationship that cook and, um, 
and Herbert have could likely be conditional on like the health of say Austin Eckler. I, I think Keenan and Mike Williams have been kind of all systems go all year, but like, you know, is cook essentially the third or fourth option, I guess on uh, LA could, I think have a tangible impact on how he relates to those different players. Um, I think really like the, 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 probably the best way that I, if, you know, had infinite time and kind of uh, infinite computational power, like, I think it would be useful to try to bucket players by by type. So like um, not just by their position, but like, yeah, Kelsey and um, who are we? Comp- uh, Dar- uh, Darren uh, Arnold he, or whatever. Uh, but, Jared Cook to Herbert. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So like Kelsey, uh, you know, is is this like high target share, you know, central offensive piece. Jared Cook is like some secondary, uh, you know, probably kind of secondary piece of the offense. And then. Um, I don't know, you know, so, some other tight end is just being essentially a tertiary, like non, non piece of the offense, right. You know, trying to, trying to bucket these guys uh, so that we can kind of get a slightly larger uh, sample size. And yeah, like also, for example, not looking at Jamal Williams relating to say Hawkinson as how does Jamal Williams relate to Hawkinson, but rather how does a running back that projects for like 70% rush share, uh, 15% target share typically relate to, tight ends that project for 20 plus percent target share um, and kind of bucketing and looking at correlation across those buckets, I think would be like the optimal way of doing it. Um, yeah. And I, and I think that's, what's so hard about all of this is because we are working with incredibly small sample size. It's like small sample sizes within small sample size. Like you were saying yeah. the Jamal Williams stats are very contingent on what other primary and tertiary pieces were active that week. Um, which kind of brings me to, I think this is a good question uh, here from the losers. When again, kind of talking about these bigger, just macro team correlations because he's referencing some teams who've had success recently. And I saw these last week in the Thunderdome, uh, a Brady Gronk uh, in the one I saw actually had Fournette with the onslaught. We've seen some Stafford triple stacks uh, that have included Darrell Henderson. Uh, obviously it makes sense that those kind of onslaughts would work more in smaller field, but do you have any thoughts just about just the obvious kind of macro correlation of if, if a team rolls, let's just, eliminate the number of things we have to get right and play four or five of these from a team with a massive implied team total. Yeah. I mean, I think it makes sense on a slate specific basis. Like last week, for example, there were, um, I feel like not that many, there were a few teams. I think there was what that one game, which I forget exactly which it was, uh, that was kind of separating as the high total game. And then just like a bunch of games that were kind of similar with regards to reasonably high, but not like exceptional, uh, game totals, all pretty tight games. Like to me, it just felt like a slate where there's like, and, and, you know, I think I said on Blender show, there's like, it felt like there were a few teams that you could truly rule out. Uh, the only team I pegged is like the game that I thought, you know, could rule out in a big way. It was like Carolina, Miami. And of course, you know, Jalen Waddle was a big piece. Um, so I guess like these, and, you know, as, as thinking about like buy versus non-buy weeks, so the more games there are, um, essentially there are more things you have to potentially get right to be a winner in a small field. And so, um, you know, maybe um, taking like a a more of kind of a a preference for onslaught, I think could make sense on some of these smaller slates um, where, I'm sorry, on some some of the larger slates rather, where essentially it's like, it's going to be impossible to pin down, um, you know, the best combination of, of players across 14 games uh, and going to be really hard to pin down the best combination of players across 14 games and 10 games, all of which maybe not 14, I guess you never get 14, but like 13, 13, yeah, whatever, whatever kind of the max feasible games are. Um, and then if many of them are kind of viable, I think then um, trying to go with maybe more of an onslaught approach, especially like when ownership is going to be more spread out. Like I do think kind of the, the onslaught approach becomes more viable when ownership is spread out, meaning that if everyone's spreading out their ownership, uh, like just naturally players miss. And if ownership is really spread out, there's just potentially a lot of lineups that are going to have some misses in there as we're like a really kind of week where there's tight ownership. If that tight ownership is condensing around plays that actually pan out in a good way, um, 
you're, you're kind of puts you, you're, you're setting yourself up for potential to be left behind. Um, if kind of the tight, highly owned high value plays do go off, but, but when it is kind of spread out, um, that just means that uh, people are taking vast and many and kind of various, uh, stances on players, all of which, you know, have some potential to miss, um, and then, you know, potentially being kind of tight with the game that you're focusing on, uh, mm -hmm. maybe puts you in a position to let other people miss on kind of the various players that, that they are, uh, you know, sprinkling in from whatever game, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of pulling from. Yeah. One, uh, we'll, we'll transition to a little slate specific talk here, but one other kind of final thing I wanted to ask you about, and has been a, you know, a hot topic of conversation of the GPP water cooler this year of just this idea of bringbacks and forcing bringbacks. Um, just anecdotally, it feels like, you know, forcing bringbacks last year was a little bit more in vogue. Whereas this year we've seen lots of spots where, the bringbacks haven't been getting there. And it, it seems like I've been seeing more lineups from both sharp players and, and the field where they're not bringing stuff back. Do you have anything from kind of a data level or just uh, from your own experience playing this year where you've noticed trends there or have thoughts on that? Yeah, I haven't really looked at it retrospectively from a data standpoint. I think typically my approach is just like, are there players on the other side that I like? And if not, you know, certainly don't feel... Uh, inclined to jam someone in also leaning on uh, I guess spread overall competitiveness of the game you know also thinking about like the team that you're stacking right like um, take Philly for example I think I've played a, a fair bit of Philly stacks the last couple of weeks run heavy team like I know if uh, Jay not know but I suspect that if a Jalen Hurts Dallas Goddard um, you know Devonta Smith or whatever type stack is going to get there Philly like in a blowout game is going to be run heavy. So if I'm banking on kind of the passing stack of Philly getting there, I really think that I need to have someone on the opposite side scoring points to push them. Tampa Bay, on the other hand, very uh, pass heavy. Like they'll pass regardless of what the score is. KC, Buffalo, like these are teams that I don't feel necessarily need to be pushed by the opposition to uh, go pass heavy. Uh, but if I'm trying to take a stack, you know, Miami, I think has been kind of a fun team to stack this year. They, I think are more pass heavy maybe than people realize, or certainly than they have been in previous years, but still like they're not um, a kind of foot on the gas at all times type team. So if I am stacking Miami and there are players that I feel reasonably good about on the other side, you know, I will say, all right, yeah, I, I do. I do think like for the stack that I want to kind of center around for that stack to get pushed, meaning for them to kind of be pass heavy, uh, the opposition does have to score points. Like if, if uh, you know, the team that's playing Philly doesn't score, they're going to run the ball and, um, you know, that, that stack's going to fail either way. Um, so that, that's kind of what I, I have been using as like a general heuristic, um, but haven't been looking at it closely. So like, you know, LA is an interesting one this week, um, you know, huge spread, um, I don't know off the top of my head where LA stands, but I know they are definitely not in like the uh, Chargers, uh, Tampa Bay, Buffalo, Kansas City territory uh, of skewing pass heavy. My my recollection, at least in previous years, they have been run heavy when ahead, uh, pass heavy when behind. So like that would be a spot where if I'm going to stack Stafford and Cup, and certainly at you know their price points, like for that for that stack to go off. LA has to be incentivized to pass the ball. It's not going to be like a game where you can get, you know, uh, two quarters of kind of incentivized LA offense to, to produce a tournament winning score. So yeah, if I'm stacking the Rams this week, like I probably will want to bring back a Jacksonville player. Cause um, you know, if, 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 if not having a Jacksonville player, essentially if Jacksonville duds and it makes sense to not have a Jacksonville player, well, that probably means that, LA uh, is either going to get a huge lead and just kind of go run heavy or, um, you know, the, there's not, the game's going to kind of go under. So like that would be a spot where I think I'd be interested in making an effort to bring back. Um, let's see the other, I mean, the game that I have showing up as being yeah really strong game, uh, strong side to stack is Tampa Bay. Mm. Like I said, Tampa Bay, you know, one of the most pass heavy, uh, teams probably i think the most pass heavy team over expectation this year um 10 point spread 
I actually feel like there's routes to Tampa Bay's passing stack being viable, even if Atlanta just completely duds. So that might be a spot where, um, you know, and I, it's not like I love any of the Atlanta guys, I think, from, you know, what I was looking at this morning. Like, it's not like any of the Atlanta guys are popping. It's just like strong plays. You know, of course, I think like, you know, Pitts is a guy who's kind of perennially in play, but not seeing him as a huge value. That might be a spot where I think I'd be open, uh, especially in small field stuff to, yeah, just like doing a Tampa Bay onslaught, you know, getting two of those pass catchers, including Fournette, you know, as a kind of uh, crossover pass catcher, but but also a guy who can get value through the ground. Um, that might be a spot where like I would look to maybe not be so anchored to bring someone back. Yeah. Um that that's an yeah. interesting one too because you know I'm looking and obviously this stuff uh, can change but I did pull in some updated aggregated ownership and it does seem like Brady is going to be the most popular quarterback on the slate by a decent margin it seems like Fournette um, is going to be relatively popular maybe top five top six in ownership. Uh, Godwin, it seems like people aren't afraid to go back to him. I'm seeing around 20%. Gronk looks like he'll be the second highest owned tight end. So when they when they look good in your your sims there, but you're seeing they're catching a decent amount of ownership, obviously it's more viable in a super small field, but say for your, you know, 10,000, how how do you kind of think through that problem of like they look good, but it's going to be hard for me to attack this in a unique way? Oh, yeah. I mean, I try I try to do as little thinking as I can and kind of just relying on the numbers. I, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I, in previous years, I feel like I've gotten into trouble trying to get too creative. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I like, I think our system is pretty good at, uh, weeding out like some of the high ownership stuff and, you know, look, sometimes like ownership is high because players project well. And really the, the difficult task is trying to figure out when, uh, high ownership is too high or not high enough. Um, I typically try to refer on the, refer to the data to kind of determine that. So like our numbers this week are suggesting that the Tampa Bay ownership might not be high enough um, and suggesting maybe like Las Vegas ownership. I think, you know, Carr will get a good bit of ownership just because people are going to play a lot of Darren Waller. I'm sorry, a uh, Foster Moreau um, yeah. as it stands now. And like, we have that pegs as a spot, you know, going up against Washington where, you know, maybe a uh, high ownership might not be as warranted. Um, you know, Jacksonville, I think like we'll get a decent bit of ownership because people are just going to be excited to play Cooper cup and, you know, probably think like, Oh, well, you know, I can play uh, this different by going like Trevor Lawrence plus, you know, like uh Treadwell or, uh, you know, Chenault or something and bring back Cooper Cup. And uh, I don't know, our, our numbers as they stand now would suggest that maybe you're better off just like not trying to get cute with going the Jacksonville side and like just play the Los Angeles side. Um, so I don't know. I, that, that's kind of an, a non-answer, I know. But um, I'll, I'll give you a look into your future. Um, you're going to be recording your podcast with Blender here uh, after this show. And I would bet a lot of money he touts the vomit stack, Trevor Lawrence to Marvin Jones and Chanel, and you bring it back uh, with a cup or Henderson. I'm calling that right now. Interesting. I mean, I don't know. I gotta, I'll be interested to see where our ownership numbers land on like some of these Jacksonville guys. We, I have it now projected as like not a popular stack by any means, but not like no one plays Jacksonville. Um, uh, when they just have like a normal opponent, but uh, yeah, I could see them getting boosted up a little bit just because, people are going to want to play some Rams. Um, what is but. your thought on Moreau this week? Because a, a trend that I've noticed, and I saw Drew asking about this too, just kind of with how efficient the pricing specifically for the cheap wide receivers, like 4,500 and lower has been, it feels like every week we're just, you know, really trying our hardest to find a value down there to put in our lineup. Um, and it seems like it's another tough slate as far as cheap wide receivers, but now we have Foster Moreau who's at 2,700. I mean, he projects for a higher ceiling than a lot of wide receivers all the way up to 5k. How do you handle a spot like this where we know he's going to be mega chalk? Um, is, are, is that a, a stay away for you? Is he somebody that you want to build around to get unique? I'm, I'm curious how you're approaching kind of the mega value on this slate. Yeah. So at like a, I guess kind of 
you know, one of the, we've discussed kind of these simulations and how they, how we can use data at the team level to kind of structure our strategy in the optimizer. Maybe we should do like a, maybe kind of a top individual plays in terms of their simulation value. But in our optimizer, we actually have a column that's called like simulation value. And it's just the average ROI of lineups that feature individual players, regardless of if it's part of a stack or not. And, you know, you see some weird stuff, you know, with kind of just some random guys, especially low price guys who get in there. So I try to like weed out some of these, you know, just noisy guys. But, um, you know, I think it is valuable kind of with, with some of the more stable guys who I think project well from a value standpoint and are showing up as having a positive sim value, meaning that they are the, the lineups that they're in are essentially winning more money than they're losing. Um, and it just tend, you know, because. DraftKings is like a raked format. Most guys tend to have negative simulation values. Uh, Waller's showing up as, I'm sorry, Moreau, I keep calling him Waller, but you know, the guy we're playing or interested in because of Waller um, is showing up with kind of a a break even uh, value, uh, which is actually the second highest on the slate. Um, Our our, our value seems to be liking Gronk uh, a good bit. So like, I I think Waller would make for uh, damn it. Um, uh, I think Moreau, Moreau would yeah. make for a reasonably fine play. Uh, I mean, obviously makes for a good play from a value standpoint, even with consideration for the ownership. I think uh, rostering Moreau like is fine, and I probably would do a good bit of it in spots where uh, I'm not able to find a tight end that I like with the quarterback. I guess where I might not draw, uh, maybe draw the line. I guess is that. Um, you know, I just might not be interested in stacking Moreau with Derek Carr because I think that's something a lot of people are going to try to do. Um, we have Carr, uh, I think one of the top two or three owned quarterbacks. Yeah, um, that's what I'm seeing too. Yeah, we have him at about 9%. So like, uh, you know, if Waller's going to be 30 to 40% and one out of every three of those lineups are going to attempt to go uh, with Carr and Waller, uh, with F- Carr and Moreau, um you know, I might might just be willing to go with Moreau and work under the assumption that just on price point alone, Moreau has the ability to get there, be a tournament viable tight end, um, and hope to kind of win, not by stacking my tight end, but just having a high value tight end. Um, and especially with this notion that we've seen this year where kind of tight ends have been correlating less with um, QBs than primary receivers, maybe just taking the approach of like, I'm good with the Moreau one-off. Uh, I'm going to be slightly different than, I guess, large chunks of Moreau lineups by just taking Moreau as is and not trying to pair him with Carr or not try to pair him with, you know, Terry McLaurin or, um, yeah, you know, I don't think that many people do Heineke, but, um, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's interesting. You said that too, in your stuff, because I, I just ran our, our current Sims here at run the Sims and ours look similar where we have Gronk, you know, showing up in 17.4% and Moreau, I, I thought he was going to be higher. He's only down here in 8.4%. So interesting that a couple different sets uh, of Sims, not showing him as perhaps the, you know, the value that he's going to be played at, because I imagine in small field, um, I would assume he's 40 to 50% owned. Yeah. But yeah, um, I think I think a lot of those people are going to do Moreau Carr and maybe you'd be different by just being under on kind of the game environment, but just over on the, the value, I guess, really. Yeah. And the one nice thing about that game from a tournament perspective is it is the late game. And so if you want to set up you know, some swaps there. Um, I think there's some stuff. Uh, there's plenty of options there. I mean, I was just plugging in a very quick uh, in dirty 2v2. Like if you had a Moreau and McLaurin, uh, that's 10,100 uh, 10, in salary. You could pivot that to a Logan Thomas in Hunter Renfro, another mini in the same game uh, for just slightly less salary and catching, you know, far less ownership. So there's going to be some some swap options there if you do just want to preload your lineups. Um with, with Moreau. And I almost think the way I would maybe do it too, is like you said, because there are going to be some really good GPP plays at tight end in the 1 PM slate. Maybe you have Moreau in your flex and set up some two V twos, um, with him and just kind of treating him as the, the cheap value wide receiver that you could eat. If your lineup is, is rolling, or if you're behind, then you obviously don't want to eat that chalk. 
Yeah, and you know you got some options like uh, I think Treadwell could be in play for Jacksonville. That's like a late game with similar price point. Um, yeah. I haven't looked closely at like San Francisco, but with Debo doubtful, you know, could see some stuff opening up there. So for sure. Um, all right. Well, we let's uh, let's do what we always do here and uh, wrap up with uh, building a lineup. I'm going to force you outside of your Opto Bro uh, comfort zone here and turn you into a a hand builder <laughs> here uh, on the show. I should also mention we do have the uh, Rake Free Deposit Kingdom tournament here. It looks like we're about half full. I'll drop the link in here. If you guys are listening to the audio version of this on the In a Vacuum podcast feed, the link is in the description. Hop in this rake-free 400-man $10 tournament. I review all the lineups on Monday, the winning ones. It is your chance at glory. Uh, Stuart, I know it's early here, but this is what we do. We, we build the lineup. I will give you guest honors. There's a stack, a game, anything you kind of want to start us off with here. Yeah, so there is kind of one stack that I think early in the week is looking appealing to me i mentioned tampa bay but you know i just it's like you know we probably want to think a little more outside of the box just for the <laughs> sake of the show um so one that's looking interesting to me um i do think like jamal williams is going to get a good bit of ownership and i think projects for really strong value madison is going to do the same um but we're getting pretty good sim scores on uh stacking the minnesota passing game um hmm. and you know, I do think, uh, I don't know, people like just typically don't like doing, you know, the, the conventional stack plus bring back uh, as frequently like, uh, you know, uh, quarterback, wide receiver, tight end, opposing wide receiver, tight end from the other side. Um, Swift, you know, so far this year has been a guy that I've been perfectly happy bringing back. Um, and, you know, we've seen from Williams days in Green Bay, like he's a pretty productive pass catcher. Um, so I, I, I think, uh, as it stands now, I'm fairly interested in like a cousins, um, pick your Minnesota pass catcher, potentially pass catchers. I think Elon and Jefferson are kind of prohibitively expensive to pair with one another. Um, but if we want to just kind of keep it simple and go with like a single stack, I think cousins, Jefferson, Jamal Williams is kind of an interesting base to start with and build around. Uh, reasonably high game total. Minnesota, you know, fairly condensed uh, as far as, you know, they really only have those two receivers. You know, I think you could throw in like a Tyler Conklin uh, if you wanted to and, you know, for salary relief standpoint um, and just, you know, filling out the double stack, although not super excited about doing like Conklin at 3,700. Um, but yeah, why don't we start with Cousins, Jefferson, uh Detroit bring back in the form of Jamal Williams, not a receiver, a running back, but a guy who's going to get, you know, we, we project for, you know, the essential DeAndre Swift role when Jamal Williams was injured, which was you know an awesome role. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, I like that a lot. Uh, death taxes and Justin Jefferson being projected under 10% ownership. It's the same story every week. And I do agree with you. Um, you know, last week, I think Thielen was 6,700. It was uh, a little more affordable. If you kind of wanted to premium double stack that I know one of our tilt space lineups that did well a few weeks ago, we did Thielen really cheap with Jefferson and then Adams in the same game. But this week at 7,300 and 8,200, it is tougher to come by. And, uh, I like the kind of unique way of getting to the Jamal Williams play. I am going to just as we were kind of talking that idea out just in to give us a lineup that kind of looks like this. I am going to put Moreau in our flex yeah, I like that. and I'll go ahead and put McLaurin in as kind of the mini correlation here as one, like I'd be pretty happy to let this ride if our, you know, cousins, our main stack, you know, smashes, that would be something I would be happy to with. So why don't we leave that correlation in and then I'll, uh, I'll kick it back to you here. Yeah. All right. Let me look through some stuff. Um, and yeah, also and catch up and just plug stuff in. Um, that's what I'm doing here too, just to, to check my, uh, my numbers as well. But I, I was curious to ask you because like you, you run your stuff, you see which stacks and which games are showing an ROI. Um, you get in your stack and I, I'm curious now, if you are hand building, where, where's the next spot you go? Obviously I went to this kind of late swap mini correlation that I wanted to play with, but are you now 
kind of trying to identify that that next game and and how to attack it that you think might also have good uh, ROI? Would that be kind of going down the list? To be honest, when I'm hand building, like I still use an optimizer and just like plug in. So like I'm plugging in, um, you know, Foss Moreau, Jefferson, Jamal Williams and McLaurin. Uh, and then I'll just kind of spit out like, all right, working under those assumptions um, and, you know, putting in some like parameters like, you know, I don't want to have a defense against uh, one of my offensive players trying to go flex wide receiver and just kind of seeing what, what that stuff spits out, maybe putting in, like, I, I really like using like bounce um, bounce and randomness just to kind of get some diversification in the lineups that are spit out. And, um, you know, kind of just looking at what some of the top lineups are, what some of the top players are that are just showing up as high, um, high exposure and, you know, trying to say like, all right, well, um, I'm seeing this guy showing up in a lot of lineups. So, um, you know, I, I, that's going to be a guy I'm interested in. So when I lock in Moreau, Williams, Jefferson, Cousins, McLaurin, put on some kind of low bounce um, metrics. Uh, one guy that's actually at the top that I'm sure you're going to like is uh, LaVisca Chenault. Yes. Uh, we have Antonio Gibson, but I don't really want to play Gibson with McLaurin. Um, yeah. Eli Mitchell. I, I, I'm kind of interested in either uh, Mitchell or Ayuk. Uh, yeah. Just capitalizing on this, the Debo absence. I think both those guys stand to benefit. Um, why don't we just go with whoever is lower owned? I'm going to guess that's going to be Ayuk. Um, I'm seeing know. Mitchell right now at 22%, and I'm seeing Ayuk at 13%. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's plug in Ayuk um, at wide receiver, and hopefully that doesn't tax us in a big way from remaining salary um no i think that's good i'm gonna put in uh just a the defense that looks best to me from a price adjusted ownership adjusted standpoint right now i would say is the giants at 2700 so i'm just gonna put them in and give us an idea now that we have 5750 to work with and we can of course slide moreau to tight end if we need here i was just giving us some options um, there got it okay so i've locked the way our optimizer set up it doesn't lock at a specific position um so yeah when i lock those guys so what, um what do we have once how many spots left do we have we have, between, two we have two spots all right yeah so when i'm running that through our optimizer just getting a bunch of guys spread out so madison gonna x him out because well that that would actually I don't know I don't I'm not sure that I can justify Madison. I, I see what you're saying across, across from Williams. I think like if it wasn't Jamal Williams doing something like Cousins, Madison, uh, Jefferson could be in play. Uh, and I think for small for small field stuff where you know essentially the score that you need to achieve to win the tournament um, is probably not quite as high as the score you need um, for a larger even medium sized uh, contest. Uh, if we're kind of doing a hand build and small stuff, you know, I do think going Madison could be interesting. Uh, you're just kind of projecting for this game to go over figure Madison can catch passes or receiving touchdown from cousins, but also, you know, you feel like barring a, a defensive touchdown, you kind of have full coverage of uh, Minnesota offensive touchdowns and, you know, you have pretty good uh, spots to double dip. Um, so if we're doing, how does that leave us on salary though? It's What's not it? a great spot. Um, 3,900. And so, yeah, I completely agree with your premise. I think in a small field, you know, this contest that we're building for right now, 400, I think this kind of Minnesota onslaught, um, makes a ton of sense just with the values that you're getting there. But just contextually with this lineup, I, I don't see hardly anything sub 4k, um, that I think makes worth doing this. So I almost think we should maybe go a little cheaper for our second running back here. Okay. Um, let's see. So Madison Eckler is going to be more expensive. We have Boston Scott showing up as a, um, a fairly high SIM value. Really not. Uh, I have to do more digging on like exactly. Do you have what Sanders in because he did practice um, in full? I am not sure. I have not, uh, I'm not sure where, um, exactly the the uh, genesis i guess of that projection uh if he's going to be in that that seems tough to play uh we got Darrell henderson david johnson david montgomery uh, mitchell probably 
What does your ahead. stuff think of uh, James Conner? He feels like he might be a nice uh, price for for this lineup. Yeah, we have a, a good value on Connor. Um, actually, the best value—not so much per dollar, but you know, with some scaling for cost. Um, Going to be pretty high owned. Um, yeah, you know, got a, got a decent sim score. I, I feel comfortable though with Connor. Um, I, I think kind of an alternate option to Connor at a similar price point that doesn't nearly project nearly as well, but um, should come in with markedly markedly lower ownership is uh Montgomery uh, going up yeah. against Arizona um, really would be fine with either, with either of those guys, you know, uh, I guess we don't have, well, see, like I do get a bit worried, like Moreau going to be probably the highest on tight end Williams probably a top three or so running back. Um, so maybe uh, trying to balance out with, uh, you know, someone like Demont who obviously doesn't project quite as well uh, from a median standpoint, but uh you know, pass catching, running back, full run load. Like, I was gonna see if I uh, can maybe save us a little bit of money at defense because I wouldn't mind correlating Montgomery with uh, a fresh off a nice little absence DeAndre Hopkins here in this game at sixty two hundred. We'd have to go down to twenty four hundred at defense. But the point of this exercise is not to uh to land on a set lineup so much is going to change but to uh to work through our decision process here and uh Stuart always enjoy talking with you you guys can catch him on the ASA show on the Roto Grinders network with Blender they're going to record that in a bit you can subscribe to the Substack which we were showing that data set earlier you can also hop over to advanced sports analytics and you can run through check out all of those individual player correlations yourself uh anything else i am missing here Stuart yeah, I suppose not. Um, you know, we're trying to kind of wrap up the NFL season in good form and, uh, and basketball just always a bear. And, uh, you know, we're continuing to work through that. Um, but uh, yeah, no, the, the site, the Twitter account is a good resource. We, I'm not a very active kind of personal Twitter user, <laughs> but um, we, we do uh, try to tweet out kind of stuff as it, as it drops uh, from, from the ASA site. So that, that could be a useful follow. Awesome. Yep. I have the links down in the description. Check that stuff out. A few other quick plugs, uh, hop in that deposit kingdom tournament, uh, that we were just building for, uh, always a fun time seeing what galaxy brain plays you guys land up on uh, relative to other contests. You can get your hand builder hoodies here, or if you're more a Stuart, we do have our opto bro mugs here, all (laughs) kinds of stuff for you guys. If you want to share your DFS tribalism via merch um i am going to be hopping over to another stream right after this mike zakarian and i are going to be talking about the owners club and strategy for week 13 on that contest so that'll be live here in about five minutes if you guys want to stick around otherwise have a great weekend thank you to Stuart. check out all of his work over at asa and good luck in week 13